I recently learned that our dear Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo sustained an injury as a result of a nasty fall this month. She is now recovering at home. I want to wish her continued healing and a total restoration of good health in body, mind, and spirit. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash land. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. Today's guest is a pioneer in adoption reform for over five decades and a graduate of Harvard University. She is an adoptee who has made outstanding contributions to the adoption community. She is Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, and it brought me joy to be able to engage with her one-on-one, setting the intention that you may come to know what an amazing person she is, if you don't already know it. Dr. Pavo was the founder and CEO of Center for Family Connections, Inc., from 1995 to 2012 in Cambridge and New York, founder and director of Riverside After Adoption Consulting and Training from 2012 to 2015, pre-post adoption consulting and training from 1982 to the present, and Pavo Consulting and Coaching. Dr. Pavo has done extensive training both nationally and internationally. She is a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and she has consulted to various public and private child welfare agencies, adoption agencies, schools, and community groups, as well as probate and family court judges, lawyers, and clergy. Additionally, she has worked closely with individuals and families touched by adoption, foster care, and other complex blended family constructions. In this episode, Dr. Pava opens up about her professional relationships with two leading pioneers of adoption reform, Betty Jean Lipton and Annette Barron. She shares a part of her adoption story and why, since a little person, she wanted to study the development structure and functioning of human society. She was most interested in social problems and how to go about solving them. Allow me to introduce you to someone I met over a decade ago 
and always look forward to her being in attendance as a presenter. She keeps things plain so that all members of the constellation can grasp as much as possible to better navigate our experiences in adoption land. She wants us to live our best life. Through the years, she has helped me make sense of being relinquished in foster care and permanently placed through adoption. I find her to be one of the easiest and well-educated people to be around, whether online, in person, or on the phone, as was the case for this recording. Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavel, it is such an honor for you to take time out of your schedule, and I can only imagine how full it is to have this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to talk to you, Jennifer, and anytime. Well, I know we met many years ago, and I think we decided on Orlando, Florida in 2011, but we Uh would see each other at other conferences, and every time I knew that you were going to present or speak, I just lit up, as I do to this very day, because every time you share your wealth of information and knowledge, I learn something New. You know what I really appreciate, which I've told you, is how you keep it plain. It's so easy to understand because when I think of you being a Harvard graduate, I think she could actually take it to a whole nother level, but you, I know, want to reach the masses. And so you just keep it real easy to understand. I want to thank you for that. Oh, you're entirely welcome. I think it's, you know, there's no need to make it all fluffy around the edges. It is what it is. And I think the more the most people that can relate to everything that we're going to be talking about, the better, you know? Yeah. And I know a lot of people address you as Dr. Joyce. Is that your preference? You know, it's very funny, but this is, it's a fairly new thing. I, I think it's the, the lovely ladies from NAP. You know, I started doing that uh, once a month Tuesday thing for uh, after reunion and they started calling me Dr. Joyce. I mean, I signed my name, Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, but it it became a thing. And it it reminds me of Dr. Joyce Brothers from the (laughs) 60s or 70s. It's very funny. You know, it's not necessary, but if some people like to do that, I'm fine with it. And if they just want to call me Joyce, I'm fine with that. Okay. All right. Thank you. So I recently heard you say something to Simon Ben on his podcast about some days you say, I'm just good enough. And when you said that, I thought, I'm going to use that. So I've been borrowing that quite a bit, you know, on some of those maybe challenging days. Good enough feels so good. Where did you get that from? Well, you know, in the context of what I was talking about it with, I've dealt with some medical issues in the last few years, and so I've been not doing very well. And when people ask me, I really don't want to go into it, and I'm bored with myself saying what's going on. So I just say, oh, I'm good enough. And, you know, if I'm I'm here talking to you, I'm good enough, you know. Um, But also the good enough mothering of Winnicott is... um, you know, some teaching and developmental psychology that I think is important. 
And people, people seem to think they should be the best or they should be superlative in some way. And it's great to attain that and it's wonderful to strive for it. But really, it's okay to be average. It's okay to be good enough. It's okay to just exist. And on some days, it, that's, it's lucky if you can do that. It, it, we are dealing with a lot. And, um, you know, in the world, in ourselves, in the issues that certainly the people in the world of adoption have, you know, I think it's, it's important to give yourself the attention for being good enough for it's just okay. Right. Yeah, I love that. And, and so what is a typical day like for you in oh. Cambridge, Massachusetts? You know, I don't think there are any typical days, and there really haven't been in most of my life. There's some structure. I ran a clinic for many years, and there was some structure around it. I'd go into my office, and I'd be there, or I'd go out, and I'd, you know, be an expert witness on a case about a child's custody, or I'd go and and give a talk here or there, or I'd, you know... There's just different things and different ways that I work with people. For instance, um, currently, I I always have one or two clients that I'm working with that really need intensive consultation. Mostly this is around re-engaging adoptive families with birth families. And mostly it requires that I spend time. And it's usually with the, a child or adolescence at the, at the forefront. And so I'm, I have to do many, many, many phone calls, Zooms with providers, therapists they've had in the past, family therapists they've worked with. I want to get a sense from every angle about this family and about how they've negotiated this open adoption and what the roles and responsibilities are for each of them. And do they really understand that? The case that I'm, one of the cases that I'm dealing with right now is a kinship adoption. And to me, kinship adoptions are the hardest to be open because they're open anyway. It's your extended family. And they know each other too well, and they have their own issues and belief systems built in about each other. And it makes it very, very hard for the child because there's usually some tragedy that led to, and it's usually some addiction or some domestic violence or something that led to the child being raised by the aunt or uncle or by the grandparents. And so these kinds of situations are are really hard. And it's been interesting to be dealing with them on Zoom in the recent years because I used to deal with them in the clinic or in my office. But actually, I find doing it by Zoom has its advantages. I still like seeing people live and in person and really looking in their eyes and getting a a true, uh, sort of a psychic sense of them, you know? But the... The Zoom is great because you can put people in different rooms and you can have them mute themselves so they don't jump in and jump on each other. And there's, you know, people learn better listening skills sometimes. Lately, my days have been filled with some of the same families, but with different sessions going on in the course of a week. Mm -hmm. So anyway, 
that's yeah. a that's a crazy answer, but there really isn't a regular week. It's uh, there's lots of different things that I do, and then I might meet a friend for lunch. I might, you know, <laughs> Mary Gaucher, a wonderful adoptee who's a singer, and she's from Nashville, where you are. She's coming to play in Cambridge, and Anne Heffron and I are going to go see her on Friday night. So there's, you know, there's all kinds of funny little things that go on in my life. Well, that sounds like fun. That's something to look yeah. forward to. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to support other adoptees. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I was reminded of several kinship adoptions that I know of, and I was under the impression that at least they could stay with people that are like in their tribe, right? Like, like a right. part of their DNA. Right. Yeah. But the way you explain it, I, I can see where it would be, could be co- very complicated. Yeah. You're totally right about that. And, and of course, I think, I think it's best to have kids stay with their family of origin, however that takes shape. And if it's with a kinship adoption, that's terrific. But, it needs work because in many cases, when you're with in a stranger adoption, that that family isn't going to necessarily badmouth your birth mother in the way that her sister, who put up with all of her addiction and all of the problems that happened in their lives, is going to badmouth her and how that's going to affect the child. You right. know, so yeah. these things have to be talked about and boundaries have to be set. Grandparents raising grandchildren often don't get the importance of boundaries when their child is still using and isn't supposed to have unsupervised visits, not just not to be mean, but just to be protective and realistic about what might happen. Sure. So, you know, we most recently were in person together at the Untangling Our Roots Summit given by Right to Know and, and NAP, National Association of Adoptees and Parents. And how was that experience for you? I thought it was terrific. I've always worked very hard to bring different communities together. I had a clinic for about 30 years and The name of it was the Center for Family Connections. And I thought very long and hard about the name. It did not have the word adoption in it because I wanted to serve foster families, uh, donor families, surrogacy families, step families. I mean, some of all of those families have some of the same psychological and emotional issues to contend with. And the larger our band of people, the better we can change the laws and policies and practices to serve us. So I love that conference because it was the first big attempt to bring some of those people together and to see the similarities and the differences, to acknowledge them, and to realize that we have much more power in numbers. And if we can pull together and work together, we can make some of the changes that are very, very necessary. In in donor situations, the secrecy is the same kind of secrecy that it is in adoptions. That's one of the, the foundational issues that's really, really negative and really hurts us all. I really enjoyed it. It was very informative because it was my first time really being around NPEs and donor conceived. And like I had 
not really been exposed to that community, and so I'm still learning so much. And I agree, there's power in numbers. So I'm so happy those two organizations brought us together. Every time, like I say, you speak, I just could listen to you all day. I was so glad that you participated. Yes. Well, thank you for that. I think it's because I've been around so long. (laughs) I've been doing this work for about 55 years. A lot has changed and a lot has stayed the same. But I do think that we have to revisit and revisit things. And it's very important for people to, you know, to hear some of that and to get a sense of where we've been and where we're going and to feel strong within themselves when they feel a little lost uh, in the midst of what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And speaking of being around for a very long time, being so connected to the adoption community. There are pioneers in the community that I didn't get a chance to meet personally back in 2011. And one of those individuals is Betty Jane Lifton. And while I read her book, Twice Born, which was one of the first books I read when I got better connected to the community, was life-changing for me uh, to hear and adopt these words and I know that you personally knew her, and I believe she passed like right before that I attended my first conference, so like 2010 or 2011. So do you mind like sharing about your relationship with Betty Jean? Sure, sure. Well, BJ was an amazing person. And when you talk about her writing, she was a true storyteller. Her early job, she was always a journalist. She traveled the world. She was a, a war journalist during the Vietnam War, and she lived in the, in the East. And she also wrote children's books. So she loved to tell stories, and she had this mythological approach to things. And she had a beautiful way with words. If you heard her speak or you read anything by her, it was always pretty wonderful. I met BJ, oh God, when did I meet her? A million years. It (laughs) feels like so long ago. And at the time that I met her, she was, um, and and she's married to Robert J. Lifton, who um, is a force of his own. I mean, he's a very famous psychohistorian. And they worked together on a lot of things that was really wonderful. They lived in New York, Central Park. They had a house in Wellfleet on Cape Cod. So I met BJ so long ago, I would say maybe the early 80s. It was very, very long ago. And I met her in New York. We became very good friends Maybe it was earlier than that. I, I, I really would. I can't remember time zones anymore. I just sort of, you know, know that it's been a long time. Right. We spent time together in New York. Many of her kids were in Boston. So, um, you know, she had two kids and, and they were often in Boston in schools and whatever. So I would see her here, too. But mostly on the Cape. I spent my summers on the Outer Cape and so did she. So we spent a lot of time together there, and that was terrific. And then I would do a summer conference um, on the Cape. She would always come and speak, and she'd always be so aggravated because she, one day she, she made her whole talk about whether you were a lark or an owl. 
Did you get up early in the morning or did you stay up all night? BJ was a night owl. She would stay up all night and write and talk. And our other good friend, Annette Barron, lived in California, which was three hours earlier. So BJ would call me and she'd have something she had to talk about and we'd talk about it. And then I'd say, BJ, I can't talk anymore. It's 12.15. I really have to go to sleep. I have to get up at six in the morning. So I'd hang up and she'd call Annette in California and it would only be 9.15 there. So Annette would get the story for the next three hours and she was a riot. She was really wonderful. And she was very welcoming of people. She she was she was a terrific person, and and very eccentric, in a charming way. The funny story, Jennifer, is I was on the Cape one summer. My birthday's in August. I was there with my daughter and a bunch of friends and some family. Blah blah blah. And she said, "It's your birthday this week." And I said, "Yes, it is, BJ." She said, "Well, won't you come over for dinner?" Bob and I are going to have, want to have dinner with you for your birthday. And so I said, okay. And she said, and, you, and why don't you bring Cesha, my daughter, and David, who's a friend of mine who's also adopted, and she loved David too. We went over for dinner, which I thought was going to be a nice, quiet dinner with Bob and BJ in their beautiful house in Walfleet. And I walk in, and it's a huge dinner party with people like Norman Mailer. I mean, she only knew famous people there. <laughs> Robert Motherwell, this famous artist. There were all these incredible people who did not know me, and they were there for my birthday. It was just hilarious and very BJ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah, I, and I'm glad you mentioned Annette Barron, because that would be another book that I picked up over a decade ago, The Adoption Triangle, and she co-authored it with D. Ruben Tanner. Yes. Yes. And, oh, I just remember that line or paragraph about her thinking in terms of adoption reform. What's with all this secrecy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Annette. And And that um, was great. And that was another one who was very eccentric, but much more down to earth. She would not suffer fools and she would not put up with any secrecy. She told everybody their information when she worked at an adoption agency. She would just give it to them no matter what the rules were. And she was really an ally for adoption. She also wrote a book that's little known, but that with the coming together of Right to Know and NAP, I think everyone should read it. It's called Lethal Secrets. And it was written quite a while ago about donors and about the secrecy in donor uh, situations and how wrong that was. So she was she was ahead of her time and she was working very hard. She'd done a lot of political work and she was, you know, she was a rabble rouser. So she loved trying to get the people in adoption and donor situations to wake up and do the right thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have to look that up, Lethal Secrets. And for all my listeners, I'll put these books, these titles and authors in the show notes so that it'll be easy for you to find. And I know a lot of adoptees have mentioned Betty Jean's book, Journey of the Adopted Self, and it's been just a powerful tool for them. So I just want to say that and definitely put that in the notes as well. And before we get to your book, The Family of Adoption, which I simply loved, and I know you published it many, many years ago, 
but I found it to still be so pertinent today. Do you agree with that? You know, I do agree with it uh, because if you're talking about people's emotions and people's psychology, that doesn't change. But there are things about that book. My publisher has been driving me crazy for over 10 years to revamp it and, and bring it up to date. And, you know, I have a bunch of rough drafts, but life gets in the way. And then I thought when we had this pandemic, I thought, oh, great, I'm going to do this. But then I got sick, not with COVID, with something else that took my, you know, focus away. And so I I do want to get back to it because there are things I would like to write and add to that because it is, it's a very easy to read book. You don't have any idea how difficult it is to edit your millions of thoughts into something succinct that people can sit down and read in one or two settings. That's what I was really trying to do, because at the time I knew that everyone who was connected to adoption, the professionals, the parents and the adult adoptees themselves really would find some of this very helpful. And there weren't a lot of clinically based perspectives at that time. So I do feel that I, I, it's terrible that I haven't re opted and put it into the the situation of today. And I will do that um, if I can in the next couple of years. Right. And and before we get to some parts that um, really spoke to me, would you mind for the listeners sharing a part of your adoption journey, your relinquishment and adoption journey, wherever you want to start and however much you want to share? Sure, sure. Well, I'm one of those, you know, right, one of those baby boomers. I was born in 1946, the end of the war. And I think at that point in time, and that was also the beginning, it was the 1930s. And so this was early on, 1946. It was the 1930s when adoption became an institution. Before the 30s, Communities just sort of absorbed kids whose parents couldn't parent. It was very normal to just take care of a relative or to, you know, bring someone in if their parents passed away or something happened. And it was done very loosely. There was no legalized adoption. There was no changing of names. Everyone knew what happened to Susie's parents who died in a car crash. And everyone knew how sad that was and that her aunt... Helen was raising her. Everyone knew the reality. She didn't have to have these secrets and lies floating around. That didn't mean that she didn't have pain and loss and that she didn't have terrible trauma from her parents' untimely death and tragedy. But it did mean that the reality was there and the information was there. The 30s and 40s brought about this change in adoption where it became much more legalized and much more structured. And this is when uh, names were changed and situations were uh, secret and it, it just changed completely. And these are the things we don't like about adoption that are hurting too many people to this day. And what happened when I was born, it was the 1940s, it was after the war, there were so many babies that they could match you 
completely with your parents. So my nice Irish Catholic adoptive parents were matched with a baby who was Irish Catholic and who probably looked like some of their extended family. Everyone was told, this is as if you had this baby, get on with your life. This is as if you didn't have this baby. The name was changed. The identity was changed. I always say it's like the witness protection program. When I was at Harvard, I worked with a young woman who was in the witness protection program. And we used to talk about how similar it was that your whole name and everything is changed and no one's supposed to know the, the records are locked and sealed. And that's that. Right. So, yeah. it's, so it's crazy. So anyway, so I was brought up in this family that wasn't that different. There was probably a socioeconomic difference. My parents had, you know, were pretty middle class by that point. I had a nice childhood. My parents didn't get me. And I knew that. I was told I was adopted, but you don't tell a child something once. You have to tell them 14 times to go get your coat. We're leaving in 20 minutes. Right. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) How do people think you can tell them once that they're adopted and then never talk about it again? But that's what people did. And I don't blame my parents. They did what everyone else did. They just didn't know. And no one knew how to explain this. I think the reason I've done the work that I've done all of my life is because I kept seeing this is nuts. This is crazy the way this is happening. This just isn't right. And I I loved staying overnight at friends' houses and being a sociologist. I mean, a six-year-old sociologist, an eight-year-old sociologist, I would go and study how families lived and what real, quote-unquote, families had for breakfast and how they acted and what their good night rituals were like. I was fascinated by all of that. So I've always had this family therapy thing going on. You know, so I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, a nice little town. I had a lot of issues. I was very bright, but a handful. And it was always blamed on my red hair. That might be partially true, but I think it has everything to do with my adoption and my ongoing search for what the heck is going on here. What's the true story here? And it it wasn't about, it wasn't that my parents were bad. I mean, I'm lucky. I know so many adoptees that had terrible situations and were abused and, and had things happen to them in their adoptive homes. I didn't. But I still didn't have the information that would have helped me to make sense of myself. And those things really need to change. We really need to give children much more information. And it's changing a little bit, but still not enough, still not enough. So long story short, I knew that I wanted to work in this field. I was going to go to medical school. I ran away with with a boyfriend who was a musician, lived in the Virgin Islands, and that took me off track a little. When I got back, I I went to grad. I didn't finish undergrad. I I applied to graduate school and went. I have two master's degrees and a double doctorate in order to legitimize my work in adoption because everyone would say to me, adoption isn't a subject. There's no psychology of adoption, Joyce. That's what my Harvard professors would say, except for Eric Erickson who was terrific, and he was half adopted himself. 
and he was a friend of BJ and Bob Lifton. So he was really a champion of what I was doing. And that was really wonderful. Mm. Yeah, I read that in your book about yeah. he took on but that I, Eric's son. Yeah. Yes. The only other thing, I, I, I am not going to go on and on about my story. You don't need to hear it. But the thing is, I did search when I was in my late teens, early 20s. There was no way I wasn't going to find out more information. That was my goal. And I found my birth family. I met my birth mother first, and she had six boys and a girl. And slowly over time, I met them. I still have Sunday dinner with many of them. And, you know, we all spend Thanksgiving together. And it's a wonderful family. I'm really blessed that I had two families that were pretty wonderful. The thing that was wrong was the information wasn't shared. They, they would have loved each other, I think. Right. Chapter two of your book really spoke to me. The parental rights, the adoptive parent. Like, it spoke to me in the sense that I, I sat with what it was like for my parents to not be able to conceive a child mm-hmm. and resort to adoption. In times, I've felt like, okay, I'm a second choice. Like, I wouldn't be a part of that family if they had been able to have a child naturally. But Mm -hmm. for for some reason, Chapter 2 allowed me to sit with what it might have felt like for my adoptive mother. Yes. Yeah, and to not have dealt with that herself, you know, dealt with the issue of infertility. Yeah, that chapter helped me a lot to, to think about how hard that must have been for her. Because uh, she was born in 1924. Uh-huh. And she had somewhat of a very challenging childhood herself. And then fast forward and want to start a family. I remember telling me once, all my friends are having babies. And I wanted a baby too. Yeah, so that chapter helped me a lot. And then when I got to chapter five, I was like, oh, no, the adopted adolescent and young adult. Like, I went straight back to when I was, like, 18 and 20, and and that chapter was very powerful, too. I'm so glad you wrote this book. I know that towards the end, when you talk about being a presenter in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's this, the presenter prior to you was talking about how it was an honor to be an adopted person because you're bringing two families together. Can you talk yes, a little bit absolutely. about? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I wanted to say, Jennifer, that the part about the chapter about the adoptive parent experience, I thought was very important because there was huge secrecy around infertility and those women, especially, but men as well, who, um, you know, the infertility was the male, didn't have a way to talk about that or to process it. And it affected us, the adoptee. So there are so many things that secrecy hurt that in and of itself would have been handled differently if it was a subject that people could discuss. And I don't think that a lot of adoptees or our birth parents think about the situation of the adopted parent, other than to feel like they ended up winning, quote unquote, which the whole situation of adoption is not 
child-centered and it doesn't take care of all the people involved to this day and i think that's a sad thing but now i'll switch to the yeah the hawaiian situation there are many cultures and probably all cultures at some point in time who just did open adoption but sometimes they were ritualized and the maori and the Hawaiians, who are of the same tribes, more or less, had a, a way of doing adoptions. In Hawaii, it's called the Hanai system, and I forget the word in Hawaiian, but it is, you know, everybody in the community knows. It's like a wedding. You pick a family because they, your resources and theirs are going to help to keep war out of your island or they're going to give you more power or they're going to do something for you and so you arrange a marriage or you arrange an adoption and it's not secret it's very public and what they used to do that i liked is they used to have the birth mother breastfeed the baby for the first two years because that's part of the whole of having a child and giving them what they need so they would honor that and then there would be a ceremony when the child turned two or three where um, everyone in the community would get together and the child would be shifted from one family to the other and the adoptive family would become their parents and the birth family would become their aunt and uncle it was very normal it was what they did and it was open and so this adoptee who went before me was chanting and drumming and at the end of that he explained that he had chanted the lineage of his birth family and the lineage of his adoptive family and that he was the vessel that held two families and that it was a great honor to be able to hold two families yes. and boy is that different than how we feel about it right. i mean that's not the message we got Exactly. And and on that page, 115, and I like when you say this was an incredibly hard act to follow, referring to after he presented, you presenting. <laughs> and you say in, in the book that how wonderful it would be in American culture if adoption were an honor, if each adopted individual were held in such a revered and respected position and in turn felt this pride and respect toward both sets of families. It's, it makes me emotional. Yeah. 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 And, and over and above that, wouldn't it be great that people didn't have to? I mean, this was still a bit oppressive because all these adults were choosing where the child should be. I think we'd still be a little up in arms about that aspect. But the the lack of secrecy and the positivity about it is something that if if you're going to do an adoption, it's important that it be done with with all of that honoring and all of that awareness and keeping the names available and keeping the lineage connected is just very important. Yes. And I'm reminded of a 50th birthday party that I gave myself and invited family and friends. And by this time, I was in reunion with my maternal side. And having both families there at this 50th celebration was, was me feeling what you wrote about your journey when you say, 
I truly love and respect both of my families. Mm -hmm. I feel the honor and the value of being the connecting point between these two families. And I remember, I didn't have the words for it during 2014 when I had that party, but you gave me words to it. And I think that as adoptees, and I'm sure I know all reunions don't go very well, and so many adoptees have shared with me that they're estranged from their adoptive families. And that's sad. That's heartbreaking. And yet, at the same time, I think about those of us who are in reunion, and we still have relationships with the families we grew up with. And then in reunion, there's more family. And I'm the connecting point. You helped me to see that that's what I've been feeling since I have been in reunion. I would explain that to people when they were having you know, trepidation about getting to know the birth family or the adoptive family, I would explain that it's a lot like marriage. You get in-laws and some, some in-laws you love better than your family you grew up with. And some in-laws you don't like, but you put up with them because you love your partner. And the grandchild is the person who holds both lineages and who brings those families together And somehow they have to mend whatever they can. And they can't in some instances, but they have to mend what they can to be present at all the rites of passage of those grandchildren. And I feel like adoptees are like the grandchildren of both of those sets of families. They they do have that opportunity to bring people together but they can't do it while we have these crazy laws and secrecy and shame and guilt associated with this whole thing. And, and when it's done, when children are trafficked and when they're moved for the wrong reasons and when people are doing negative things to them along the way, those are just not, not helpful to make things better. Right. Well, I usually ask a guest this question. What has been the most rewarding and or challenging thing about being connected to our community? Oh, my goodness. Do you have another hour? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're an interesting lot because of the trauma and the secrecy and the guilt and the shame. We can be very difficult and we can be very protective of ourselves hurtful of others. We can be very competitive. We can be very uh, secretive. There can be all kinds of things that happen. So I've watched wonderful possibilities of conferences go awry because people can't get along. I've watched people do terrible things to people who are doing good things because of the competition they feel. I'll start with that kind of negative thing that is directly related to the policies and practices in adoption that create that paranoia and fear in us. Mm. So that's the downside, I think, of our life in the world of adoption. The upside is finding the most amazing people who really get you in a way that other people don't. The people you love the best, some of your dearest friends sometimes absolutely don't get it, tell you to get over yourself. Why are you still stuck on this? Why can't you move on? Why? What's wrong with you? Um, there are so many things that other people 
don't put themselves in a place to understand. They'll never walk in our shoes. But no one in adoption walks in the other person's shoes. We all have a very different story. But somehow we have that connection and it really brings us together. And you see it with the birth parents when you go to Cub. You see it with the adoptive parents when no one is understanding how awful it is to try to raise an adolescent who hates you because they really want to be with their birth family. And maybe you're not, you're not hateful. You're just not the person they want to be with right now. Right. When you see all of those people, and most especially when you see the adoptees together, and when you see them, uh, you know, sharing and really becoming, you know, a tribe, a group of people who really get each other and who really understand where the other person is coming from and feel understood, that's the most wonderful part. Mm, yeah, I agree. Well, Dr. Pavel, this has been an absolute joy. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share? Oh, let's see. Well, you know, I've, I've watched over these 55 years of work and 76 years of life. I've watched people, myself included, try to make the changes that would make things so much better. And it takes so long. Adoption is like a huge battleship. And you can't just turn it around. It's a big deal to get it to turn around. I think sometimes people give up and they don't keep working on the things we need to work on. And once you think you've done something, in my early days, I used to think, oh, if I fix this, then I can move on to that. But guess what? You have to fix the same thing over and over and over. Right. I mean, you know, just because you've trained 100 people, great. You have 100 people who get something about this. But you need the next 100 and the next 100 and the next 100. And you need people who are working with the world of adoption to understand the world of adoption. And to this day... There are no real courses in social work school, in psychology, in family therapy, in education, in pediatrics, in psychiatry. There are no real full courses on understanding the complexity of what's going on in the world of adoption. And there really should be. If we're going to have departments of child and family services, and if they're going to, you know, help to disrupt families for good and for evil, then we need to have people who can work with those families and who understand them and who are doing the right things for the right reasons. And if we're going to transport children halfway across the world to cultures that they don't understand, languages that they don't understand, we have to really think about what we're doing and what we're doing for these children. We're not just saving them. We're also putting them in serious trauma situations by just moving them. Mm. So I, I think we have a lot to learn and we have to keep dedicated to it. And we have to know that it's not a one-shot deal. This is an ongoing, until we can dismantle this and reconstruct it in a way that works, 
we have to keep working for the best of all of the people involved, and most especially for the children. The babies and children and adolescents of today need our help, even if we're angry about adoption and we want to dismantle it. Well, they're in it right now, and we can't dismantle it fast enough, so we can't just abandon them. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, there's a poem that is in your book on page 39. I don't know if you have your book close by, do you? I don't. I don't. Okay. But I love that poem, To the Adoptive Parent. And so I urge everybody to get a copy of The Family of Adoption if you haven't gotten it. And I will, like I say, include it in the show notes. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. It's been great talking to you. You have a great day. You too. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Dr. Pavo. After we stopped recording, I asked her if it would be okay for me to read a poem she wrote that can be found on page 39 of her book, The Family of Adoption. She said sure to my invitation and I'm happy to recite it for you now. It is a poem to adoptive parents. You cannot change the truth. These are your children, but they came from somewhere else. And they are the children of those places and of those people as well. Help them to know about their past and about their present. Help them to know that they are from extended families, that they have only one parent or set of parents, but that they have more mothers and fathers. They have grandmothers, godmothers, birth mothers, mother countries, mother earth. They have grandfathers, godfathers, birth fathers, and fatherlands. They have family by birth and by adoption. They have family by choice and by chance. Childhood is short. They are our children to raise. They are our children to love. And then they are citizens of the world. What we do to them creates the world that we live in. Give them life. Give them their truth. Give them love. Give them all that they come with. Give them all that they grow with. Your children do not belong to you, but they belong with you. You cannot keep them from what is theirs, but you can keep loving them. You do not own your children, but they are your own. Thank you, Dr. Pavo, for having this conversation with me. Your wealth of knowledge and experience has me learning things, unlearning things, or reframing an old thought pattern to improve the quality of my human condition. As your quote on PavoConsulting.com states, coaching you is guiding you to success and ensuring that you are performing or striving to perform at your very best in all aspects of your life. 
Every time I get to be in the same space with you, I receive your guidance, and I know without a doubt why it was important for our paths to cross as a part of my healing journey.